So today is our Black Note episode. It's our advisory warning episodes. We're going to be talking about some pretty graphic details of genocide, murder. There's going to be just some of the worst torturous stuff that's been on this show since Unit 731. Uh, we're going to be talking about some things that a lot of people might not have the stomach for. If you are the faint of heart, as Talon would say, tune the fuck off. Pussies yeah, you bitch. He, would say. <laughs> he said it best. I'm just saying. He said it best. He did this is the story of S-21, Cambodia's killing fields. Dylan, take it away. Dun, dun, dun. In 1962, in Byongking Kang Bay, Phyongpin, a school with a sprawling campus consisting of five buildings named Prom Pei Yat High School, later named Tul Sui Prey, was built. Today, the three-story structure now stands as Tul Sling. It stands as a grim reminder of an estimated 15,000 to 20,000 people that were imprisoned tortured, and killed by Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, 1975 to 1979. Lining the walls in one exhibit of the museum that has taken up residence in the buildings are black and white mugshots of the 600 by 400 meter plot of land, now dotted with spots where visitors can meet the prison's survivors or take a guided audio tour of the facility. It has a dark and disturbing history containing horrifying medical experiments, cruel interrogation, and a sadistic chief of prison. Today, we are discussing Security Prison 21 and the Cambodian Genocide. Police are on the scene of a deadly shooting of graphic orgies of blood and violence. Mutilation, decapitation, torture. Does that sound entertaining? More blood than a blood bank. Have we got your attention? Unbelievable crime at the hands of satanic cults. Despite dozens of tips, help from federal agents, and a $40,000 reward, investigators say there are few solid leads. If you find this disturbing, just wait, because there is a whole other dimension. You are now listening to a morning cup of chaos. To understand what led to the formation of Tool Slang, we must first step into 1970 when Cambodia's leadership changed statuses in a bloodless coup. Prince Sihanouk stood as the chief of state in January of 1970 when he departed from a two-month stay in France at the French Riviera. Ooh. Ooh. Wow, fancy. Yeah, fancy. <laughs> it's just the French Motel 6. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave the candle on for you. Well, in 1970, I mean, it probably was. You know, what, what, what was it? Honestly, how cool could it be? <clears throat> Before he could return to Cambodia on March 11th, 1970, a sizable protest took place outside the North Vietnamese and Provisional Revolutionary Government of the Republic of South Vietnam Embassies. The aim of the protest was to call for the end of the Viet Cong troops being stationed in Cambodia. The crowd grew more and more incensed, looting both embassies and lighting them ablaze. With this news, Sihanouk chose to visit Moscow, Beijing, and Hanoi to attempt to reason with the leaders and assist to the recall of the Viet Cong troops. See, he went to Russia, I told you. Yeah. yeah no, totally <laughs> Everybody was communist Moscow. at this point in time, and he was trying to figure out, like, how communism worked. And was... Russia backed anybody at that yeah. point in time. You paid him enough money, they would back you. North Korea kind of points to that, too. It only points north. <laughs> you fucking son of a bitch. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Quiet. Ah! Nice. <laughs> I hate how you timed that. That was another knee slapper. <laughs> Five days later, I'm Manorine. The half-brother of Sihanouk's wife, Monique, was summoned by the National Embassy on charges of corruption. 
Mannerine responded by commanding troops to arrest Lan Nol and Sirik Matak, nationalist conservatives that were Mannerine's first, and Mannerine was arrested. Hold on, was his name Lan Nome? <laughs> Is that what I heard? Lan Nome. No, it was... Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> kind of was. He tried denying it. <laughs> It's Lon Knoll, like the guy from uh, Lon Gnome, all right. It's Lon Gnome. <laughs> Sorry to ruin his name for you, but <laughs> Lon Knoll and Sirik Matak, nationalist conservatives that were heading the coup, planned against Sihanouk. However, Lon Knoll's troops made it to Al Manary first, and Manary was arrested. March 18, 1970, the National Assembly voted to remove Prince Sihanouk from his position as Chief of State and allow Lon Knoll to immediately fill Sihanouk's position. Lan Nol, now considered the prime minister and general, was reinforced by the Cambodian army and the metropolitan middle class. March 23, 1970, Sihanouk announced the formation of Front Uni National du Campeche, or FUNC, an organization that was created to overthrow Lan Nol and place Sihanouk back in the place of power. Okay, so FUNC. Like, fuck. Yeah, fuck. Uptown Funk, we're, don't give it to us. We're here to Uptown fucking. Uptown Funk, don't give it to you. We're, we're here to fuck you up. What are you guys' names? Funk. Funk. It's pretty funky. That's just... Um, God damn you, you made the joke. I was trying not to. I was hoping nobody would. What'd you expect? It's like some toe funk down there. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> it doesn't get any better with the next one. The next one is Grunk. <laughs> and their sister company, Gunt. <laughs> He rallied the Cambodian people to stand against Lan Nol's government with funk. To the Khmer peasantry, Sihanouk was perceived as a near-godlike figure. Sihanouk's status and the title as prince was also held in high regard, as was his family. Even Lan Nol held respect for Sihanouk's family as he visited Sihanouk's queen mother to bow to her feet and plead with her for forgiveness in removing her son from office. Sihanouk's statement endorsing Khmer Rouge and the formation of Funk was disseminated via Khmer Rouge soldiers broadcast all over the Cambodian countryside. This quickly led to protests rooting for Sihanouk's cause. This display was met swiftly and violently by Lan Nol's troops, creating a spectacle of the incident. With Sihanouk's official support and advocacy for an organization named Khmer Rouge was quickly accepted by the public. A following group was announced by Sihanouk on May 5, 1970, a government in exile known as the Royal Government of National Union of Kempashu. Grunk. <laughs> you know what? Thank Grunk God. and funk, bro. So Thank that's why it took 20 minutes. <laughs> Thank God for that acronym, because I would not be able to say that. Oh, no, dude. Imagine yelling that in the middle of a battle. Like, you'd be shot and dead by the time you'd get, like, the, But also the imagine out. people screaming grunk. Grunk! Grunk! <laughs> <laughs> That's what they do on the Patriots. What? Gronk. Oh, oh Gronk. I was going to make that joke. <laughs> Consisting of communist-led countries such as China, North Vietnam, and North Korea, Gronk's aim was to dissolve all correspondence with Lan Nol's regime. That last name, though, like, Nol. Lan Nol? Hold on a second. That's pretty fucking cool. Hold on. I'm really proud of you. You never once said Lan Nome. I'm very proud of you. I, pra I practiced a lot. <laughs> we, we can tell you practiced the names, just not English in itself. Exactly. <sighs> He's working on it. Our practice was during the episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
Meanwhile, in Phnom Penh, a military trial was held on July 2nd, 1970, in which Sihanouk, while not present, he was in the French Riviera, was charged with treason and corruption, found guilty of both charges, and sentenced to death, all within a three-day trial. This trial also sentenced Monique to life in prison, and Queen Kazimak would be placed under house arrest. For the next five years, Sihanouk withdrew to guest houses in Beijing and Pyongyang. In 1972, the organization that Sihanouk had announced two years previous, the Khmer Rouge, had taken the reins from Sihanouk, using him as a puppet leader and controlling the strings behind the scenes. For three years, the Khmer Rouge traveled with and interacted through Sihanouk with other countries, including the United States, as they persistently intercepted them via plane in a close air support campaign initiated by Richard Nixon, referred to as Operation Freedom Deal. Now... To connect the radical communist group to the horrors experienced in S-21, we need to introduce the man behind the infamous prison. Born Kang Kev Yu, later known as Comrade Duke, was born into a Chinese family in Chow Yat Village, Kampong Tham Province. <laughs> First, okay, I, 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 I'm, gi- I'm giving him a clap for the fact that he pronounced all of that, all of that good and easy in a row but what was with the name change like why 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 you switch from he went from a straight like uh cambodian like 16 to 28 syllables name to like three guys to american i'm gonna i'm gonna blow your fucking mind right now it's called one thing this whole story surrounded about it communism (laughs) <laughs> Why the hell else would you change your name to Comrade Anything? So, <laughs> so yeah, but Comrade Duke just reminds me of Duke Nukem. Ooh, good point. What was the village called? Well, I don't think he was thinking about that in 1970. <laughs> <laughs> what well, What was the village called? Fuck you. Don't <laughs> do it one more time. Choyat Village, Kampong Tham <laughs> Province. <laughs> Fucking nailed it. Twice. Com, pom, thom, province. Yeah, I want to see the person who made that village. Let's do an episode on him. <laughs> How do you spell that? <laughs> What'd you do in your life? Com, pom, thom, province. Good vacation. It just sounds like a Studio Ghibli movie. Howl's moving. Com, pom, thom, province. That's what singers have to do to warm up their vocals. Like, come, pom, 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 Fucked it up. I don't give a fuck. How do you even spell that? Pom, 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 pom. K-O-M-P-O-M-T-H-O-M. It is notable that Duke was of Chinese descent in this time period because the Chinese were said to be traditionally despised by the Cambodian populace at the time. Meaning Duke knew from an early age what it was like to grow up ostracized and criticized purely based on his race. Notably as a child, Duke was not his first name change. Only a few short months after Duke's birthday, his parents brought him to an astrologer to see what the future would look like for their son. After one look at the baby, the astrologer told them that they would need to change their son's name to protect him from evil spirits. Duke's parents took this claim seriously and changed his name to Yimchev, meaning slow, poor, old-fashioned, and straggler. It's not known why Duke's parents chose this name for him, but he grew to dislike the name as he got older. Weird. Makes sense. I would, too. The Duke was a much better name. Yeah, I don't think I would enjoy being called stupid and slow. And poor. And poor. (laughs) We we call you that every day. You call him me. that every day. We keep him back. You from the guys edge. laugh, which means you agree with me. 
We yeah. don't stop it, but we don't enable it. <laughs> <laughs> That's like all of the high school teachers. Yeah. yeah. At 15 years old, Duke asked his parents permission to change his name back to Kang Kev Yu, and his father approved the change. This pattern of changing and adding identities through names would eventually become a tool Duke would use to sow confusion and hide his identity. In his youth, classmates did not have much to say about Duke. One classmate described him by stating she viewed Duke as a quiet, intelligent boy, but she also noted he rarely smiled. In his school life and with his peers, Duke mostly kept to himself and was considered a fairly serious child. In his home life as a child, Duke was not any less stoic. When discussing his parents, Duke expressed disappointment and embarrassment towards his father. While they were both self-taught men, Duke could not cope with the idea that an uncle of his, a loan shark in China, controlled his father. This power over his father seemed emasculating to Duke, and he began to lose respect for his father at a young age. In regards to his mother, Duke said little other than he believed that his childhood was filled with the normal amount of occasional beatings by his mother. No more, no less than anyone. An impressionable child, Duke set his sights on a career path that shaped a crucial part of his life path. He began to idolize his French teachers. The same French teachers who regularly beat him were now fused with a viewpoint of both power and a sense of fortitude. As Duke continued through school, his teachers instilled a philosophical doctrine in him, Stoicism. One such teacher was Ki Kim Hout, a local teacher and communist who denied himself of comforts and often looked after his poor pupils by paying for food, school supplies, and basic needs they could not afford. Unlike his father, Duke viewed Kim Hout as a learned man and someone worth admiring. In a culture where being poor was often a point of shame, these actions stuck with Duke for the rest of his life and only crossed the wires of a hope and discipline further for Duke. Duke began studying for his teaching certificate at the Institut de Pagogi in 1964. A hardworking and studious student, Duke seemed to excel in his classes. However, his choice in schooling would inevitably change his life for the worse. This institute was known to be a hive of activism under the dictatorship of a man named San Sen. That one was kind of easy, guys. Yeah, that was that cool. Was, that was awesome. <laughs> I wish they could all be like that. Damn. I didn't remember it because it was so easy. San had a long history of radical political viewpoints and actions and would go on to join the Grunk, the Cambodian People's National Liberation Armed Forces, as well as become Chief of Staff of the Khmer Rouge's forces. Much with his experience with Kim K. Hout in 1962, Duke received his teaching certificate in mathematics. Oh, God, you can never trust a math teacher. That's what I'm... You can never trust math in general. Fuck the <laughs> Dude, I got to fucking, uh, I cannot wait until my kid's old enough to start bringing home like complicated math and I do You're it the gonna way I was taught. You're going to fuck it all up. Dude. And my t I'm going to get a paperback like, yo, you didn't do this right because this is the way we do it. And it's like, I was taught this way my entire life. You remember when you were a kid and you were with a parent, <clears throat> if you have parents, that were trying to help. <laughs> okay, Bruce Wayne. <laughs> Jesus, Fuck. Fuck you, orphans. You were in the kitchen Jesus. with a legal guardian, and you were doing math problems, and they're like, it's so fucking easy, but you're like five, or not five, you're like ten, you're like, I don't know what to do. Dude, I, yeah. I had that. Me, yeah, me too. Me too. I was Why the, the fuck don't you get this? I was I'm like, sorry. you're not paying attention. He goes, I am. I'm like, what's five plus five? He goes, I don't know. And I'm like, go. Oh. It was a very long and stressful day of... Math. <laughs> you know what? I've never used math. My dad just beat me. 
<laughs> allegedly. 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 <laughs> My dad just threatened to beat me. There was always a stick, but we never saw it. <laughs> My dad just... <laughs> My dad just moved nine hours away. But <laughs> hey, my mom. <laughs> he just never came. He just never came back with the cigarettes. <laughs> dad, if you're listening, I miss you. When are you coming home with that gallon of milk? Oh, jeez. After he got a certificate in mathematics, he was assigned to a secondary school in a small town named Scum. Fun fact of the day: The previous name of the province was Kampong Pawistam, Port City of the Great Snakes. On every Buddhist holiday, the snakes would appear to the people nearby who would make them begin to refer to the area as Kong Pong Fong Tham. Eventually, the snakes disappeared, and the name was shortened to Kong Pong Fong. During the colonial Cambodia period, the French divided Cambodia territory to providences and names of most of them according to the local popular names for their respective areas. Through his teachings, Duke heavily expressed his values in stoicism, self-control, and self-denial of both physical pain, and human emotion. Through his lessons in mathematics to his secondary school students throughout the late 1960s and early 1970s, his students regarded him as a good teacher, a devoted man with severe and intense conviction, along with his former teacher, Kim Kauhut. Duke joined the Communist Party of Kampashu, CPK, in 1967, and after witnessing several of his students being arrested, Duke made the decision to quickly retreat to Shamkar Lu District, Upon arrival, he was fully accepted with open arms as a full member. There, Duke was destined to meet the infamous and mysterious leader, only known as Pol Pot. Pol Pot. Dun, dun, dun! Yeah, he deserves that. Born into the village of Prex Bauv on May 25, 1928, to a prosperous farmer named Loaf Fem and his wife Sak Nem, Pol Pot was born Salaf Sar, Sar meaning white or pale, in reference to his pale skin. Sar was the eighth of nine children, three of whom would not survive into adulthood. Similar to Duke, Sar was also of Chinese descent, but he did not grow up speaking Chinese or living in any other way than most other families at the time in Cambodia. His family owned nine hectares? That's a lot of hectares. Hectares? That's a lot of hectares. Damn. Hectares of rice. Like hectagon? Hectares of rice. How many sizes are in a hectagon? Eight? Nine. Six? Nine? Twenty? Hect. I don't fucking know. Shut up. I think it's seven. Right? I think you're thinking of a hexagon. Um, Sept is nine. September is nine. Are you stupid? Yeah. (laughs) 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 The seriousness on your face is. Are you stupid? <laughs> you might be right. <laughs> yeah, Google, we got this. Yeah, While we're doing that, uh-huh. <laughs> we'll let you know. Be yeah. back after these messages. Hey guys, it's Tom with the Magic Wand from Misfortunate Media. If you made it this far in the episode, we stopped for a beer run, but check out our other shows, our deep dive show, Morning Cup of Chaos, our anime show, Now I Mention Everything, and our new show, Meta Misfortune. You can check us out on any streaming platform or anywhere you listen to your podcast. His family owned nine hectares of rice farm and several draft cattle. Sar's family was one of the most affluent in the village he grew up in, and his father would often hire his neighbors to harvest their rice fields. His mother was viewed by the village as a pious Buddhist and someone worth high respect. Sar liked Duke. 
He was a teacher who joined the CPK in 1963 and actively spent time ascending the political ladder until he was general secretary within CPK. Through this shared organization, Saar, along with his decision to join CPK, became one of the founding members of a radical communist movement, the Khmer Rouge. Boiling down his role, following this he ended up hiding behind Sihanouk's title until 1976, when he held a fake election that resulted in him taking Sihanouk's position. After being arrested in 1967, a few months after joining the CPK, Duke was taken to Prey Saar Prison. Oh, nice. That's funny. The other guy's name was Sar. Coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise known as S24. With his capture, Duke witnessed the torture of citizens at the hands of Sihanouk's police under accusations of engaging in communist activities. For the next two years, Duke was held without being granted a trial. Upon his release, Duke immediately sought to join the Khmer Rouge's forces in the Karmadan Mountains near Thailand. While training with the Khmer Rouge, he would earn his infamous title, Comrade Duke. Prison Commandant. When asked in an interview with Christian Delage what the new name meant to him, Duke responded, Duke means the scholar who stands up straight when his master asks him to stand up. It was clear that Duke used this name to model himself after the men he admired, such as Kim Kehut, Vorn Vett, and Duke's immediate superior, Pol Pot. In 1971, Duke would go on to set up his first wartime prison camp, M13, in the forests of Am Liang, Thopong District. Two years later in the Oral District, Duke opened his second prison camp, M99. I really want to make a joke about how Oral is in like a dentist and it's a prison camp. Welcome to camp, suck dick. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? I was, <laughs> I was being PG. Get fucked. Yeah, this, this is, is a family-centered episode. This is not episode. a PG thing. I, I, I explicitly click the explicit content every what? time I upload. Okay, so it's PG in your terms. This camp suck dong. We deserve <laughs> that fucking E next to guys, our fucking name. Guys, come on. We have to keep it PG for the next half a page because then it gets pretty fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> this is the easy part. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you. Now. I'm sorry to tell you that's not going to happen. Trust me. I can make any joke if you want me to. Mute him. <laughs> no! <laughs> From the year 1971 to 1975, Duke, assisted by two other deputies named Comrade Chan and Comrade Pan, fine-tuned his interrogation techniques. In these two prisons, Duke's specialty was elicting confessions, whether true or false, to support the perceived threat of possible enemies hiding amidst the members of the Khmer Rouge. Chan Korn, the grandson of two men who were both incarcerated M13 under Duke's control, testified in court. He means business. Whatever he says, he follows it, so everyone was scared of him. After five years of bloodshed, strafing, and brutal civil war that claimed as many as half a million lives in April 17, 1975, Cambodia's capital, Phnom Penh, fell to the forces of the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer Rouge forces have been bombarding Phnom Penh for four months at that point. Over one million refugees had been forced from their homes in rural areas during the Civil War and herded into the city. Already having faced the horrors that have commenced over the previous five years, the people residing in the cities made an uneasy and exhausted alliance with the Khmer Rouge's forces. The refugees in the cities knew comparatively little about the Khmer Rouge and presumed the peace would be better than war. The hope was that in combining forces, the Khmer Rouge could assist in rebuilding their war-torn country Marty Sang, a refugee in Phnom Penh, 
who was 10 years old at the time, remembered the day the Khmer Rouge took the city. April 17, 1975, two weeks after my family was reunited, Sang recalled, as his family's lives through the Civil War had been traumatizing, the Khmer Rouge toppled the Lan Nol regime. On that same bright, warm, glorious, and victorious day, a new era, not of peace and tranquility, nor of hope and prosperity, but of suffering, torture, hunger, diseases, work camps, re-education, and systematic killing. I also have a disease. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck, I almost had it. Ah, oh, shit, what the fuck? Get the fuck out of the way! Hey, fuck you, man, I'm trying to skate here. Hey, man, fuck. what's wrong? Dude, there's nowhere good to fucking skate. I keep busting my ass on, like, concrete and sidewalks. I'm just tired of it, dude. I hate this town. Why don't you go to Hollywood? Hollywood? What the hell is that? It's an all-action, sports-friendly, 8,000-square-foot indoor skate park in Dubuque, Iowa, with 2,000 of that in a separate area, which can also be used for party rentals. Open six days a week, and we'll be doing an all-age show coming up here in the near future. Oh, shit, man. Thanks. I might have to check that out. Yeah, they're at 3125 Cedar Crest Ridge B. And when you go there, use the code MISFORTUNATE for half-off lesson or $5 off a day pass, which is normally $20. Oh, thank God they have lessons. I can't skate with shit. Hey, me too! Nice! Before it was revealed that Sihanouk was being controlled by the Khmer Rouge at this point, Phyong Phim, Badam Bang, and other large cities were evacuated, uprooted, and once again, just a week after Phyong Phim fell into the Khmer Rouge's forces, it happened again. These evacuations were not an orderly, well-organized, or even planned course of events. Su Ching, a Chinese immigrant living in Bang at the time of the evacuations, recalled that the announcement given in the city was that they would have three days to evacuate their homes or be shot. Thousands of people poured out of the building along the street, slowly walking along the road. We had no idea where we were going, Su Ching stated. We just followed the orders. During this evacuation of major cities, Thousands of citizens died, especially elderly citizens and young children. Those who survived the evacuation were herded out into this countryside, accompanied by the guerrilla troops that had invaded their city. These troops mostly consisted of young men and teenagers who were heavily armed and given little training. When questioned by evacuees, they responded by telling the citizens to obey the Angar Pavat, the revolutionary organization. The evacuees were informed that the revolutionary organization would be their new mother and father. Among the troops of the Khmer Rouge, they began to refer to the evacuees as new people or April 17th people. These titles were meant to criticize the refugees who had been moved to the cities as they joined in an alliance with the Khmer Rouge later than their countryside dwelling counterparts. Those living in the countryside were given the nickname of base people and by no means were treated more kindly. They were treated less severely, but not really more kindly, if that makes sense. <laughs> kind of. <What? laughs> like, you know, like they got beat, but like three times a day. Not instead of four. <laughs> yeah, Look, he said what? It was he like instead of extra supper, it's extra beating. Many of the evacuees who made it to the rural areas were often marched out for miles and abandoned to build their own dwellings in empty fields. But some spent months on foot, hoping to be reunited with family or friends in isolated areas, or even in surrounding countries. Nearly all of those exiled to the countryside from the cities became peasants and were required by the government to wear all black, cotton, identical clothing. So that's kind of like the 
basically like the star of David. It's well, it's well, it's a classic thing that happens in cults and it's like dictatorships it's like how they all the time. Differentiate. Sound it out. Differentiate. Thank you. <laughs> it's how they separate yourself. It's, well, it's, you how, they take repre- away, it's how they take away your So it's identity. like um, yeah. exactly. Heaven's you, Gate. You represent as that, yes, yes, you're now yes. some kind of like Klingon name. Well, but like this is you're identifying as a symbol. It's it's the same as the like Holocaust. Prince. Yep. You wore the same clothes and you had numbers symbol. to identify yourself. You weren't a person. Nope. You they, were a symbol and away, a number. They took away your identity, unfortunately, for these poor people. As soon as the evacuations commenced, more commandments came forth from the Khmer Rouge. They planned to alter Cambodia's culture, socialization, and almost every detail of life. The concepts of money, sales, and private property were now all considered terminated. All schools, universities, and Buddhist monasteries were to be immediately closed with no reopening in sight. Publishing any written material without the approval of the Khmer Rouge was outlawed. The postal system was halted and subsequently eliminated as well. Even daily personal choices such as changing addresses, sharing of information, leisure activities, and even accessorizing their appearances was reined in and considered infractions. So, so being a person, yeah. being a person, you're pretty much fucked. Sounds so easier. not to go like political or anything, but I don't think people fully understand the grasp of communism. Like, you are no longer an individual. No. You work for your country. You feed for your country. You are your country. It quite quite literally is yeah. the meaning of it. Yeah. Discipline for these actions was harsh, and repeat offenders were imprisoned or simply killed by a bullet to the skull or by being beaten to death by Khmer Rouge troops. New people were assigned tasks seemingly at random, not taking into account employment or experience. The year that followed was full of starvation, confusion, and the murder of generals, soldiers, and members of the wealthy community. So to go back, <clears throat> sorry, to go back on that uh, death sentence kind of stuff. Um, a lot of the times, um, I don't know about fuck. How do you pronounce it? Khmer Rouge. Khmer Rouge. I don't know about them in particular, but a lot of the like Eastern countries, like Russia, China, um, there was instances where if you were on death row, like in prison, like political prison or whatever, if you were on death row, you don't know the day you're gonna die. A lot of times they would just come in. It'd be completely silent. You'd hear some boots echoing across the walls. You'd open up the door. Bam! Close the door. And See, I would rather have that than, like, no one going to die. You well, guys? No. You, you want to no. know? I mean, you want to know I don't believe in state-given death penalties anyways. That, and we, I do, depending on the sense I don't. that they See, we've put. been over that a while, but I'd rather not know when I die than, like, just wait for the fucking day. Like, hey, so, next <laughs> Thursday you're going to die. Or, like, let me... Don't, let me I so, would pop a pedophile in the fucking head. If 100%. Let's say, okay, death penalty in America versus... Close enough. So, in America, you know the day you're going to die. May 22nd. It's coming up. You can get your final rights, whatever you want. In this instance, you don't know when you're going to die. So, every single day, you will hear bootsteps... Of the Russian officers or any, I'm sorry, I this mainly in Russia, but I know other countries like this do it. Um, of the country's officers, just clack, clack, clack. Open up a cell door, revolver goes off once. You might not even die from the initial shot. Then you'll spend three days just dying from infection. I would still rather not know my, I, I don't know. That's I, three I, days of suffering versus one overly priced taxpayer cocktail 
I wouldn't call it a cocktail. That's that's literally it what quite, it's called. It's quite literally called a cocktail. It's the cocktail. It's the lethal injection cocktail. Ah, I missed that part. Okay. Because it's it cocktail passes you a out. bullet is so much cheaper. Well, I'm going to... A cocktail is like, what, four fifty, five bucks now? Speaking, <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> one, sh- one shotgun shell is like probably a dollar. No. It's less. I said one. It's less. Well, it's... you want a slug. You don't want birdshot. Yeah, it's less. Speaking of the cost of bullets and stuff of that, one of the things that the Chimera Rouge really, you know, kind of beat into people, literally, was a bullet wasn't worth your guys' life. It was usually a person took you out to a field and set you there and hit you in the back of the head. With an axe. And uh, I believe the quote from that is, uh, murdering 10 innocent people was better than letting go one guilty person. Yep. And there was another, uh, I guess, saying, you could call it mantra. (laughs) There you go. Uh, This one's really, this one's tough. This one's sad. It was, to save you is no profit to us, and to destroy you is no loss. That's fucked. Yeah, this is where the episode gets dark, guys. And, like, as, as a country, bullets... They are expensive. That's why the Holocaust ended up using gas and other techniques and not just using the bullet because they needed the ammo for war. Especially whenever it was during wartime. Like, you would rather give it to a soldier on the front lines so they can shoot it Mm -hmm. rather than wasting a bullet on somebody who did not fucking matter. And, I mean, from the perspective of the Germans, like, if if the Jews are going to die regardless. Exactly. if you'd rather, like what you said, give the bullets to the soldiers fighting the war... If you know they're going to die and you're already heartless enough to kill, you know, innocent people, you're not going to care how they're going to die. Nah. They can suffer. They can be quick. You can starve them. You can chop them in the head with an axe. You can do whatever for free. My question to you guys is what would you do in that kind of situation? Would you be kind of brainwashed by your your branch? You go through the military. None of you have been in the military. But, like, having that kind of experience. I tried. I know. You're diabetes. <laughs> I get it. I tried to. Don't worry about it. But, like, the idea of listening to your government so fucking hard that you're willing to take what you think is an enemy life for absolutely nothing and do it in mass numbers every day. That's your every day. You wake up and you kill somebody. You kill not just somebody. You kill a couple somebodies. After wiping out whole families of wealthy people, daughters and wives were usually captured, raped, and killed. The Khmer Rouge, backed by the government, said that they had been convicted of having easy lives. Amidst the Khmer Rouge's invasion and evacuation of Pyongyang, Duke and his staff transformed Tool Sve Pre High School into a detention center to harbor the victims of the mass evacuations that were of use to the Khmer Rouge. The sprawling campus surrounding the building were surrounded by electrified and barbed wire fences. The windows of the buildings and the balconies were fitted with braided barbed wire and nets to prevent prisoners from jumping to their death below. The front face of the building had white windows and doors shuttered shut, and even behind those shutters, the windows were barred. The floor that extended out of the balcony was an orange and white checkered pattern, frequently depicted in the artwork of survivor Von Noth. And I personally checked out some of his stuff before this, and man. If you're in a building with any checkered pattern, get the fuck out. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that was like a death sentence in the 70s and it's before. legit. Insane asylums, hospitals, death, everything. If it's, if like, look at that floor. 
If it had a yeah. checkered tile on it, you were fucked. Ow. The five buildings were labeled very originally. A, B, C, D, and <laughs> I was about to go one, two, I three, four, five. Like, I could have one, two, three. Come on, guys. There's a four, lot. Five. <laughs> they knew that podcasters was, would cover this later. And They're like, we, give them a you break. know, we got to give them a story, all right? The they names, be part of this. The names are fucking trumping them, but uh, the fucking buildings will give them a break. Building A was used primarily to contain high-ranking members of the Khmer Rouge, who had been accused of being traitors. One classroom would be divided crudely into two separate cells in the building. Half of the classroom would be given to these individuals. Not all prisoners had as much room, though. Buildings B, C, and D were made to hold far more prisoners. Each cell in these buildings was, on average, two feet by six feet, roughly. Damn, so you wouldn't... No, I wouldn't even fit. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, most of us are... Over six foot. So I have a question. Sounds if they like don't care about, if they don't care about the people, why do they take the time to make the floor checkered? Why don't they just do a fucking normal? It was a school well, originally. School, Jake. Yeah, you gotta listen dumbass. to the story. No like way. I said, if it's checkered, get the fuck out. This dumbass is like, hey, they built this building to fuck up these people. No, you. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, well, it's it, a high school. It's, it's, they did do that. That wasn't yeah, the point. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Claustrophobically tight, these rooms were made to isolate prisoners. These pens would be where the individual prisoners would spend hours or days on end with little light, wasting away with starvation and fear, awaiting their next beating. The cells on the ground floor were made of wood, while the cells on the third floor were hastily laid brick and mortar. A narrow makeshift hallway cut through the rows of brick cells for guards to pass through and make their rounds. On the second floor, these buildings would be much larger and an open cell. These cells were built to even house between 40 and 50 prisoners. All right, let's take a second to go ahead and... Uh, Talon, please describe what you're looking at on the TV right now. A sad man. No. Oh, what? that's a mirror. I'm sorry. So it looks like it is... <laughs> um, honestly, just a, just imagine any regular high school classroom and then add like cheap, cheap, cheap labor of bricking um, made... By what, what was measurements? Two foot by six foot? Yeah, roughly. And honestly, if, like I said, majority of us even here would not be able to lay down straight. I think Tyler probably would. You couldn't lay yeah. down. Because he's short. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah. six foot? No, you, if, no, if you laid down, you were beaten. No, I'm yeah. just saying, like, if you laid down in general, like, none of us would be able to lay down besides Tyler. Yeah. Because he's yeah. under six foot. Yeah. Uh, no, I couldn't lay down in this cell. I mean, and you had a shitload of people standing up. Row by row by row by row by row, and you were either shackled to the floor or you were shackled next to somebody that was probably on the verge of dying. And when that person died, do you think the guards gave a single solidarity of a fuck about if you kept standing next to a dead guy for a couple days? Because I promise you the answer is no. That's a negatory, Captain. There is no chairs. There is nothing, absolutely nothing in these rooms. So when you're you're talking about these rooms, okay, you want to think about an ordinary classroom, and I want you to take seven cells on just one wall, make them out of brick, and try to fit that into one classroom, one side. That would be the space that I'm looking at in this picture right now. Houses surrounding the former school buildings were gutted and transformed into improvised interrogation rooms where thousands would find themselves faced with beatings, torture, and even death. If not killed in these rooms, their cells, or in the large holding area many would meet their ends in, 
the fields nearby, a place that came to be known as the Cambodian Killing Fields. Sisawath Daun Chato, who was eight years old at the time, recalled his father's death. Two days after the interrogation, they took him to the killing ground. He was hit with a metal rod three times at the back of the head. Whether he died immediately from the blows was not mentioned by Met Chan, the executioner. My mother did not wish to know any more. My father, Sisawath Dong Kara, was executed on July 1978. Two final rooms would be constructed before Security Office 21 would open its doors. One office used to file any and all documents by the general administration working on the grounds. The other, an office for S-21's notorious ringleader and sadistic senior bureaucrat, Comrade Duke. Duke's design and the structure of the prison camp was both sadistic and methodical. While some were dragged from their day-to-day lives, beaten, and arrested, other prisoners of S-21 were picked up under false pretenses by the Khmer Rouge guards. One thing experienced across the board in these arrests, at some point, the guards would handcuff and blindfold their detainees as they approached S-21. So when did he, when did he change his name back to Duke? Uh, he changed his name to Comrade Duke when he joined the Khmer Rouge. It was like 1967, I think it said. Yeah, because then he was all hell-bent on communism at yep. that point in time. Yep. Upon arrival at the facility, each prisoner would be given a number and be forced to stand in a line with their hands still bound, usually enduring random kicks and punches from the guards or listening to the far-off screams of inmates being tortured. Their blindfolds would then be temporarily removed and they would be photographed. These black and white photographs would be taken from the waist up, either from the front or profile view hands cuffed behind their backs, and staring straight ahead. After being photographed, prisoners were made to give extensive, comprehensive accounts on their life history. Guards would have them begin at their childhood and end at the time of their arrest, not skipping any details, and being pressed by the guards with a mixture of questions and swift blows. So not only are these dudes, like, asking you to remember everything from the beginning of your life to the now, it's, what did you do when you were eight? When I was eight... I, uh, had a piece of cake. Whack! You get fucking punched in the head. See, you know no, what, what did you do on Monday when you were eight? <laughs> Once the guards were satisfied, they would force prisoners to undress down to their underwear, regardless of the time of year. All of the personal items they had brought with them were confiscated, including, but not limited to, money, glasses, and wedding rings. Next, they would be separated and taken into two, one of two places, either the small bricked inn or wooden cells, or the large room. In the room built for higher capacity, prisoners would be immediately faced with 40 to 50 or more gaunt, silent faces peering at them when they entered the room. I honestly, I like imagine this being like what you would see if you went to hell. Kind yeah. of like you just have just faces that don't even almost have any shape or any real like identity to them. Just eyes and mouths just Daunting staring faces. at you. Like, That's why I'm looking at you right now. Like, they have no clue if you're human or if they are even at this point. They're, I mean, they're so lost, and they're, they're they're aware of what happened in World War II. I mean, we're in 1975. World War II happened in 1940 to 1945. 1939. I mean, yeah, this was all happening because this was all happening after, you know. Yeah, the so Viet they understand. They understand like like, what kind of situation they're in. Uh, and, and when we talk about this, we also have to think about, like, we had Unit 731 that we talked about earlier, 
and these kind of things happen to the Chinese people. I mean, this is this is all stuff that's well known, like mass genocides being rounded up like this and being taken out in large quantities. This is not something that has been done once, twice, three times, four times. And here we are again in Cambodia now, just wiping people out left and right. Well, it's it's funny. It's not. It's not. <laughs> but, it's, but, it's, wow. but it's funny. It's, it's ironic. It's ironic. It's funny. It's ironic. Is that how I started it? Is that how I started it? No. How I'm going to say this is it's funny because I didn't know anything about S21 until doing research and stuff like this. So me and Tyler were actually sitting in my house just hanging out, having a few beers. Sucking dick. And, oh, well, you guys. Yeah. Allegedly. But <laughs> but he I'm not mad I'm just he disappointed. Like, <laughs> he mentioned something about how like man you know been a few genocides and like I mentioned one and he's like I don't know that one and then he mentioned this and I was like I don't know that one. So it's ironic because almost everybody knows of the Holocaust. Everybody almost everybody thinks that Hitler is the worst human on earth and there's, they're not wrong. But there's I mean Stalin. Hitler did what? Three to four million? Six. Seven. Seven? Was, yeah, uh, like Stalin, seven. Stalin did like 10 to 11 million. And, and then you have the Chinese, uh, what the fuck was his name? Chao Ming? Chao Zhang. Chao Zong? Uh, I think we're being racist. Mao, no, Mao, no, no. Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong. It was Mao Zedong. It was definitely Mao Zedong. So Mao Zedong killed, I want to say like 10 million? Like it was. It no, was, Stalin did 10 million. He, uh, was it Mao? Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong. He did probably close to like 15, 20, I believe. And he would have people on pikes on the way to the city. Vlad and Paler kind of bullshit. Crazy shit. And, and you don't hear about that in school. No, I actually remember when I learned about Mao Zedong. I want to say I was in, uh, I was probably like 25 when I initially heard about Mao Zedong. I heard about him and I was like, who the fuck is this? And he's like, you know, like the guy who's killed the most people in a genocide. And yeah. it's like, and I didn't hear about what? any of that until I had to do a research paper on the Holocaust. And I was like, okay, was there anything worse happened in the Holocaust? And they're like, yeah, Stalin did this and KGB baby. Yeah. And Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong. Sorry. Uh, he for... estimated to 40 to 80 million victims. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. I, I, knew, guys, I knew the 20 million was under his statement. You're low balling this son of a bitch, <laughs> man. You're giving him 15. Way to go, dickhead. Give him some 15 credit. 15 to 20? You give him like 30%. Our... <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> yeah. And I didn't hear about if him. I... But... And Stalin was 6 million to 20. That's a huge gap. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> That's like, yeah, I only drink five to thirty-five hundred beers. Packs. I don't you know. Go. I have a keg in the basement. I don't know how I drink beer to drink. But yeah, I didn't hear about any of that stuff till I did my own research and. I didn't hear anything else about it during school. No, and, and we never. I never ta- like even knew about this during school. Yeah, I only knew the Holocaust, and that's exactly what we said during the Unit Seven Thirty One episode because it was like something that had not been taught before. You're on your way to being thirty, and you're just now hearing about the Cambodian genocide. It's like they have not taught you guys this stuff. They don't want to. No. One of the scariest things about S21 was that even though these rooms held many men, women, and children, it was hauntingly silent because 
you were not allowed to talk. It was expressly forbidden. I would be S21. dead within five minutes. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, we know. We could say that throughout this whole episode. We would not We'd not make it. Prisoners would then be shackled to a series of iron rods, their heads lining up with the feet of others on either side of them to prevent prisoners from even whispering to one another. Chum May, former inmate and one of the only seven known adult survivors at the time of the trial, recalled the inside of this smaller cell in his testimony. I could not look around at what was outside. The room was very dark. I was pushed into a room, 202. After sitting down, my ankles were shackled, and when I was shackled, my hands were released. After this, I was not blindfolded anymore, but bags were used to block the windows. The room was 1.5 times 2 meters. Regardless of where the prisoners of S-21 were planted, the initial conditions of their time there was the same. In addition to being in underwear or less, prisoners slept on the bare floors of their cells. They were not given mats to sleep on or blankets regardless of their temperature in the cell. And in mosquito season, they were left to be eaten alive by bugs without mosquito netting. Well, at least the floor was warm if it was bare. <laughs> I hate this guy. I don't know how to reply to that. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Throughout their days, prisoners were expected to sit idly like objects or inform the guards of any action that they may want to take. If a prisoner disobeyed, they would be beaten with floggers or even given electric shocks as punishment. If you sat up, you were beaten. If you rolled over unexpectedly, you were beaten. If you soiled yourself, you were beaten and forced to remain in your own filth. The stench of the prison was described as overwhelming, almost like Talon's feet. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) after eight hours of work, I come home, I take my boots off, and I'm like... (sighs) For food, everyday prisoners were given four spoonfuls of rice porridge and a watery soup with unknown leaves in it. Not being able to subsist on this and sometimes being starved for interrogation purposes, it wasn't uncommon for inmates to starve to death and remain shackled next to their living counterparts for days, as Tyler said earlier. As for your hygiene, prisoners would be marched out and hosed off with cold water once every four days, if they were lucky. Detained higher-ups in the Chimera Rouge would occasionally be given a bucket of water and a sponge. While standing in a room with a guard, they would have to clean themselves. May stated in the trial that in the four months and 12 days he was incarcerated S21, he was only allowed to clean himself once. While not hosed down, he was only given a bucket of water and was asked to take off his underwear. Still shackled, May stated that he couldn't fully take them off. The guard commanded May to try and remove the shackle then. As soon as May touched the shackle, the guard whipped him. Every day, guards started their rounds and inspections of prisoners. Prisoners were strip searched and their shackles were checked to see if they had been loosened at all. Suicide was such a common occurrence in S21 that not only were the windows barred and the balconies adorned with barbed wire, but the prisoners would be invasively examined to make sure that they were not hiding anything that could be used to end their own lives. The torture lying ahead of them had been driven... (coughs) Sorry. The torture lying ahead of them had driven many before to do just that. The typical length of a stay at S21 was around two to three months, but high-ranking Chimera Roche cadres were held longer, as they were considered more of a risk to the Chimera Rouge's plans. However, the end of the internment for almost all of those who ended up in S21 would not result in their freedom. So, just for the people I know, I didn't know what a cadre was. Uh, it is a group of activists in a communist or other revolutionary organization. So it's basically like uh, the people that were against their government or their form of ruling. Many of those on the medical staff were untrained, 
and only offered assistance after prisoners have been delivered to their rooms, blindfolded and injured from interrogations. Oftentimes, illnesses were left untreated and prisoners were left to die. At least 100 documented prisoners were purposefully bled out on the medical unit tables in S21. Imagine that, though. Like, imagine, like, you go to the medical room table and they just cut you in a couple places <laughs> and watch you bleed out. Oh, did you slip on glass? That's funny. Let me go ahead and take your foot off about like, it. Like, the doctors are there all there. How long do you think he'll last? T- 15 minutes? They're making bets on you and shit. Like, you're trying to try not to bleed to death. Well, here's where it's really, like, a true, you know, genocide where they started this with is, the experiments and stuff. They're these like, are sick people that got hurt. <laughs> this, this was... This was quite literally, they're like, yeah, you beat that guy half to death, and he's in real bad shape, but I purposefully want to bleed that guy, so bring him in. Leave that guy there. Like, that's tough. That's a heavy concept right there. While on train, the medical staff were still conducting experiments on inmates regularly. Their health conditions were so bad that the prisoners would have frequent lice and ringworm infestations, rashes, and diseases and even infections and open wounds that were nearly impossible to prevent in these situations. These conditions, if treated, were given a mixture of experimental medications, unregulated doses, and live surgeries. Stated in the court trial in a medical booklet, it was described that as... <clears throat> After I finish this quote, you can go. Mm-hmm. In a medical booklet, it was described a 17-year-old woman had her throat slit and her abdomen pierced before being put in the water for two hours. Then she was apparently beaten, put back in the water for a whole night, and the process was repeated several times. When asked if this description refreshed his memory, Duke answered, it seems like they played around with the detainee and that was not a medical experiment. He later recounted that he had asked Hor, H-O-R, <laughs> a subordinate of his, to conduct the experiment in order to find out how many days bodies could stay in the water before they resurfaced. So what was, so she was, her wrists were slit and stabbed in the abdomen. What? Throat. Throat. Her throat throat. was slit and stabbed in the abdomen. Abdomen. Why, like, what would, what would the water do? Would that stop? Oh, I'm sure the water wasn't clean. It's blow. Well, no. Haven't you guys ever... Cut a fucking. Have you ever watched any? No, yeah, no, no. A suicide attempt is cut your. Yeah, Talon. Talon is going to say exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, the water goes into it. It you don't bleeds you you out faster. Yeah, you don't don't. Isn't it like and also like you don't feel as much like the water fills in. Like I don't. I don't know if it has to do. I mean, I don't. I'm sure it's dirty water too. So. Oh yeah, no, it's not clean at all. No, but it's going to be. So I mean, I'm sure there's shit like actual shit floating in the water. So you'd be able to get that in your bloodstream. I just didn't understand the like the go in out of the water stuff. I didn't know if like that was like a way to preserve. I don't know what the medically uh, if it like makes it come out faster or. Or what? But I know a lot of people, like especially on the movies. I've never seen it, um, but a lot of people in the Hollywood stage slip their wrist in the bathtub to show for suicide. Yep. Trigger warning: suicide. It's true. There's so many trigger warnings. That, that, that was a little late. <laughs> a little late, but that's well, while, still a warning. While we're on that topic, this is if a black you need help episode, or somebody true. to talk to, check out BetterHelp.com. Use our uh, code Misfortunate. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Tyler. It's Talon. And we're from Misfortunate Media. And we're here to talk to you about BetterHelp. Listen, guys, we get it. 
Life is hard. Life is stressful. This country doesn't take mental health as serious as it should. This is where BetterHelp comes in to help. Everyone here deals with some form of depression, stress, fatigue, and exhaustion. So we partnered with BetterHelp to help everyone who wants it. Use code MISFORTUNATE at BetterHelp.com MISFORTUNATE to get 10% off your first month. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com forward slash MISFORTUNATE. Stay misfortunate and always listen to mom. Good if it's an emergency, call the suicide hotline. You know. Suicide hotline, you can dial 988. As for the guards, they were heavily armed, untrained, and given permission by Comrade Duke to get confessions no matter what. Since S-21 was a prison camp designed for interrogation for those accused by the Khmer Rouge, the methods used were severe, and a variety of them are on display in the museum today. Duke was said to be one of the best interrogators in the Khmer Rouge, and he personally trained each of his subordinates to use the same amount of brutality he had gained in M13 and M99. Duke would even conduct some of the higher level interrogations in S21. After two to three days of being shackled in their cell, prisoners would be blindfolded and taken to the interrogation houses. Beatings were frequent, often unexpected, and expected to be met with silence. Any reactions were treated immediately with another beating. A favorite among the guards was to slowly remove a prisoner's finger and toenails one by one, twisting them back and forth and then pouring alcohol into the open nail bed wounds. Okay, so you said any reaction is more beating. So you're crying about it? Is that another beating? Yeah, absolutely, dude. They could not stand. They could not cough. They could not speak. They could not do anything without a guard saying something. And if that guard said, hey... I didn't tell you to do that. Guess what? You're getting your ass beat. And if you start crying, it is more ass beatings. And if you go ahead and and say something about the ass beatings, you're getting more ass beatings, dude. <laughs> Did I, it's like I think about it with like an old-fashioned dad where like with the belt. Yeah, we're like I'm, you know, go ahead and cry. But if you cry, it's going to be worse. You know, it's the same thing. Any kind of you you're in timeout. If you do anything that's not what I consider to be good timeout etiquette, you're getting freaking beat, man. And yeah. it's the same thing, except for timeout usually ends with you bloody and probably dead. And see, these kids nowadays don't understand that, but we had it rough back then. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We did. You guys are like fucking 12 years old. What do you mean you had it rough back then? Like, what did your mom do? Well, Slap back the in my day, we didn't have hand? timeout. We had rocks. I don't know. I'm not that fucking old. Yeah, I I agree with Jake. I didn't. I. <laughs> Rocks, too. <laughs> we all had our collection of rocks for that very... We're crying in the garden while we'll finding cool rocks. God damn it, Dylan. Get out of the garden crying in your fucking rocks. You got chores to do. <laughs> I want to do the chores. Yeah, with this cool rock. To, uh. It's called a geode, bitch. <laughs> painful electrical shocks were common in interrogations as well. When asked what was more painful, the shocks or having his nails removed, May stated... That being electrocuted was very painful and that he fell unconscious then. At the time, I suffered severely and I thought that if I had survived, I would tell the world about this pain and suffering. The worst part about this stuff is that they were trying to find things about people that did not exist. So you were beaten mercilessly every second of every day was a constant fear of if you're going to see tomorrow and is it even worth it? See, I couldn't imagine getting your fingernails pulled, like, freshly off because a long time ago I went to Tyler's place and he pulled my thumbnail off because it was, like, dead and ready to come off. And that sucked. We got real drunk for that. Yeah, we're going to post it online for you guys to see because it was 
Pretty cool. I hope Instagram doesn't take our account down. Prisoners had their heads held underwater in buckets and were waterboarded. Interrogators would heat metal instruments and brand the skin of inmates. Sometimes prisoners were cut or stabbed with various knives, and others were suffocated repeatedly with plastic bags over their heads. Ugh, I hate saying rape. It's such a bad word. Yeah, it really is. I like. Is there, I like. Don't like. Any, it's like just. It's one of the things I don't. It's so hard to like get around because you have to. So whenever I was growing up, I had to read the color purple. That's for weird. English class. Super weird. Yeah, no, it was for an ethic. Uh, the teacher was Native American. He believed that all net ethnic books should be read, and that's like that's cool. But like, I would th- there's white writers I would like to learn about too, man. So he did the color purple, and I got paragraph <coughs> like seventeen on page two or something. I don't know. It was ridiculous, but it was immediate rape, and I immediately put the book down. I was like, bro, I'm not gonna read this. He's like, why not? It's it's for a grade. I'm like, I don't. I don't give a fuck. I don't care. If you want to give me a grade for this, fine. But fuck you. I'm not reading this. I don't give a fuck. It's too much rape. He's like, dude, you only got past the first part. I'm like, I do not care. I do not want to read about this in detail. You are making me do this. Tyler's poor teacher is like, now how do I reach these keys? How do I reach keys? <laughs> He's like, I want to learn about some white writers, too. Too bad. That's not on the curriculum. How do I reach this key? How do I reach these keys? White people (laughs) suck. Women and young girls were raped by their interrogators, even though it was against the Khmer Rouge's values released in their policies. At times, prisoners would be forced to ingest their own or each other's feces and urine. I couldn't even get through that one. That's like saying it like sounds... Yeah, we can. I guess we can stop here. Just hold on one second. I'm gonna do another advisory warning and just just right before. So none of this. You can re. I mean, you can redo it. Just prepare yourself that you're gonna have to read something that, like I said, it gets it gets really gross, man. Yeah. Uh, you're on the you're on the brutal page right now. So once you get through the brutal page, talk about how. You know, there was a lot more torture. Uh, we could go on and on, but I, I we feel. I feel it like is. we should leave, like, your, like, disgust of, like, how they're drinking and eating their own poo. I like it. Yeah, they yeah. Should. I leave think that in. I think it's natural. Like That's, that. fine. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. We have feelings. Because I do like telling the story, and I like it being a clean-cut story, but... But that's fucked. But, yeah, there's no... Either way, this story only gets worse and worse and worse. I mean, there is no... At this point, we are at the point of, like... Talking about the torture, any kind of torture that happens within this episode, it is literally going to be some of the worst shit you've ever heard, and it is the only way these people survive day to day. This was their day to day just to make it through to another day. I get, you know, body horror and stuff like that. You know, thinking about that makes people queasy. But there's it's a whole different thing. I feel like you're torturing these people already. You're you're killing these people in, in mass and it's just it's the it's the degradation that makes it's the same as the holocaust it's the stuff that is totally unnecessary for any real goal it is all just you do this because it makes you less human and it makes us feel some type of way and it just it it just hits you weird as somebody nowadays reading it i feel like you can't could, could i couldn't imagine it no i, you know, I couldn't imagine it way. and that was that was the point of when America invaded 
Germany and we ran across the Holocaust camps, there were, I mean, there were armies that would make the German people come and see what the fuck this, uh, you know, this army was doing. And I, I couldn't imagine being one of those people coming up and being like, okay, this is a dead body. Oh, wow. This, this person is emaciated. Uh, oh, sorry. Emaciated. I couldn't imagine what the people of this camp and any of their other camps plus unit 731 looked like when it came down to this. I feel like they were probably rag and bones wearing the same clothes for months, if not years on end, but they didn't survive months and years. But I feel like the, the clothing were probably passed down to save money from the Cambodian army. Uh, the, the people as a whole, their quality of life, was standing in one spot, getting beaten, eating barely nothing, and then hoping to God that they wake up in the morning. Would you even want to? I was about to say that. I don't think I want to wake up if that was my life. But oh, I'm sorry. No, you're good. That really shows the strength of the human soul and the need to survive. Yeah, the willpower. People, yeah, that these people were able to put up with that because honestly I, if you had put me in this situation i don't i i stubbed my toe and i'm ready to call it you know, call I'm, ready, I'm ready to eat a bullet so. oh dude yeah absolutely i i've been over at work for like 30 minutes probably throughout the entire day throughout the entire day of work i've probably been over for like 30 minutes and it's the last thing that i do when it comes to my job i have to bend over and do this like weird complicated position and i do that for like i don't know collectively 30 minutes a day at the end of my day i'm like ah, oh, my fucking back hurts i don't know if i can i don't know if i'm gonna survive this these people were fucking shackled to the floor and each other and dead family members see you go through a whole day of work and like oh my back pain i wake up I'm like oh my back pain i might want to end it fuck ah shit See, I'm with Jake. I'm the same gravity, way. I'm like, gravity I does up. hurt. You make yeah. a good point. Gravity does hurt. It's rough. I don't know if I can do it anymore. Oh, well, this is kind of fucked up, but it's a nice segue. Speaking of gravity, prisoners were subjugated to suspension hangings, the style of hanging that relies on slow suffocation instead of a calculated drop designed to break the neck. The style of hanging allowed the interrogator to decide whether the prisoner lived or died while still being able to cut the prisoner down and prolong the torture even longer. Although many inmates died in interrogation, outright killing with this intent was discouraged only because the inmates were dead, they couldn't confess. And when I hear that, the suspension hanging, I think of uh, Dennis Rader, the BTK. BTK. Yep. He's, BTK. That was his, like, that was his M-O. go-to. That was he, his M.O., baby. I am unfamiliar with that. He's BTK. a Kansas, Kansas City serial killer. Tyler loves him. I it's don't love of- him. Just like I do not love Ed Gein. Ed Gein is worth loving. Sam, uh, or uh, son of Sam, I fucking hate, cannot stand, cannot fucking stand. Son of Sam, I think, like, some people find him funny. Like, not in, like, a, a, a like, he hurt people, obviously. He hurt and killed he, people. Some people think of him as a joke. Yes, when it comes to serial killers. And I do, I do. And some people, like, I don't know, they still find him fascinating, but I find him kind of... Intriguing? A, a character. Yeah. But before we turn this into Weird Uncle Corner, where we're <laughs> where we're doing the serial killer talk, I, I, it, I did just want to mention the BTK thing, because it was, it, it shows you that these guards have the same intentions as almost a serial killer someone who lives an average day goes home and kisses their wife has kids has a life 
and in their free time they're hanging a family slowly like these guards went home at the end of the night and were like everything's fine like i my normal life it was a job and that's it's beyond me uh that's kind of like the the nazi ss guards what they did i mean they did their monday through friday fucking job Killing people massively, I mean, in in just the most worst ways possible. And then on Saturday, they got mimosas on brunch. And then Sunday, they went to fucking church. That's so fucked up. That (laughs) is like so, because it's true, you know, like like Hans and fucking, you know, Hans fucking Gibbler and fucking Hitler were fucking sitting there with Himmler and they're all like, oh gosh, you know, we had a very rough day. How about some fucking mimosas, guys? Nice fucking. It's so good. God is good. (laughs) fucking accent. I love that. great. Hey, Himmler, I fucking love this song. It fucking bops. (laughs) Let's go to the bar and get some fucking samosas. Oh, very nice, Joseph. Very nice. I love, I love samosas. Prisoners were accused of a variety of crimes, but mostly in betraying the Khmer Rouge and their country in some way. The goal of these interrogations was not to find the truth, but rather to get the accused to admit guilt to all of the crimes that they were being accused of and to get names of CIA or KGB agents or spies. And the police actually do this nowadays. A lot of police officers, when it comes to interrogations, uh, they try to find, they, they bring up memories and they keep doing things and you get so tired and so exhausted that you'll literally admit to almost anything. It doesn't matter if you jaywalked and they convince you that you killed a kid and guess what? That kid was the president's daughter. It, it, they, they will literally convince you of doing anything after a certain amount of time because your brain is just so mush. Yeah. And well, and, and that's the thing right here is it's that like, that's the worst part is this next part. It implicated people in betraying the Khmer Rouge, you know, for CIA and KGB agents. Most of these Cambodian people didn't know what the CIA or the KGB was. They had no idea that we had in t- intelligence agencies. They didn't know that the Russians had spy, you know, like it's, you're, you're telling people to tell you something that they don't know. Like it's, it's brutal. Borderline third world country. And you expect them to know like people that have no education, no real schooling. They are just living their everyday lives, being rounded up, masked up in a fucking prison cell, being torn up, hung up by their fucking toenails and being beaten and, you know, until they they explain that they know a Pablo Escobar. Like, they're looking for questions, for answers that nobody fucking has in this area. Nobody. And if they do, like, it is, like, baffling. And if they do tell the truth, they're probably like, yeah, I know the Newt codes. And they're like, is, is that good? No, it's not good. Okay, we keep beating him. The, the way I think about it is, like, imagine going to a secluded, like, tribe in the amazon and you fucking walk up to the elder and you put a gun to their head and you're like tell me who the fuck pewdiepie is and how many youtube subscribers he has right fucking now i'm gonna blow your brains out fucking now grandpa (laughs) like you're you're asking people that have no way of getting this knowledge the answer to these questions like it's it, it is brutal it is it's it is torture these prisoners were faced with two choices They could maintain their innocence and be tortured, but be kept alive to suffer for the next several months. Their conditions could end up getting worse, guards may beat them more frequently, or they could be transferred to a different prison camp. Alternatively, they could confess to the crimes they were accused of, guilty or not, thus implicating people around them as enemies of the state as well. 
Conversely, their conditions would get better if they confessed, often being given better amenities. Sometimes the Khmer Rouge would even assign prisoners that confessed to various jobs needed by Pol Pot and his inner circle. However, once deemed to be as of no use to the Khmer Rouge, inmates would be taken out to the killing fields to be beaten to death or shot in the back of the head. In the eyes of Duke and his staff, the inmates of S-21 had been all implicated in a witch hunt style scare of Sihanouk's imagination, in which he saw enemies of him and the state everywhere. Staff at the prison were forbidden to discuss what happened behind the electrified gates of S-21, and this demand for secrecy was taken very seriously. Many countries outside of Cambodia and the few communist connections the Khmer Rouge had made knew little to nothing about the prison and work camps due to the gag order Pol Pot had ordered. Outside of those who worked at the facility or even were detained in the facility, the only people who were aware of what was happening there were the party center of the Khmer Rouge. In January of 1979, the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot were overthrown. Finally. Originally, out of the possible 20,000 inmates in prison in S21 in the four years it was open, there were only approximately 23 prisoners, five of them being children, that survived to be released one of which was a young child that died of complications shortly after being released. Only three of the seven adults originally documented as released are still known to be alive today. Chum Mei, Bu Ming, and Chim Meth. Several survived purely because their captors saw use in their skills. Chum Mei is adept at repairing machinery and was taken in by the Khmer Rouge. Bo Ming was an artist and was assigned as a painter for the Khmer Rouge, and Ming spent most of his time painting flattering portraits of Pol Pot, Marx, and propaganda pictures. Chim Meth was supposedly spared simply because she was born in the same area that Duke had been born in. It's so crazy. That last sentence right there puts a real human emotion for the first time, I think, on Com Comrade Duke. Like, he's simply spared this woman because he grew up by her, like... 19,000 people were brutally murdered for literally just existing, and this lady got to just go because he was like, oh, shit. I grew I up knew, there. Yeah, I knew her dead. <laughs> like, isn't that... Like, that really is, like, almost sickening to think of at the end of this whole story after it everything really we've is, been oh, through. Yeah. He still has, like, compassion. Like, that is improbable to think of. The Documentation Center of Cambodia more recently released that an estimated 179 prisoners were released between 1975 and 1979. Whether they escaped or were released is unknown. What is known is that at least 60 of them were recaptured and executed on the spot or in the killing fields. Duke, along with many other high-ranking Khmer Rouge members, fled to the Thai border. Nick Dunlop, author of The Lost Executioner, A Journey into the Heart of the Killing Fields, identified Duke in 1999. And interviewed him. A decade later in 2010, Duke faced a UN-backed court for his crimes. While Duke was honest about his crimes and referred to himself as deeply remorseful, he concluded his trial by asking to be freed as he had not been a senior member of the Khmer Rouge hierarchy. He was given a life sentence in response and Duke served it until he died September 2nd, 2020 in Khmer Soviet Friendship Hospital in Nailed Fangping. it. Nailed it. Whoa. <laughs> okay, so, like, this guy got through a court proceeding. It was like if Hitler... Okay, let's go with uh, Joseph Mengele actually got processed in a court. And, uh, Jake, I'm not sure if you are familiar with the Not story. a clue. Okay, 
I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. We will get Thank there God. one day, but I want to let you know. Next episode, we'll do this. I, we're not going to do this. That is a the long The following line. episode, we'll do that. Oh, okay. So, basically, <laughs> basically. Only my wife listened like that. Joseph Mangala was a scientist for the SS for the Holocaust. Did like some really crazy, terrible crimes. Imagine if that person. Okay, so he is so well known in the Nazi regime that people know his name. So, out of all of World War II, this guy's name sticks out. He must have done something really bad, right? Most likely. Okay, so like, imagine him going in from a large court and being like. Can I be forgiven? I didn't do it. Like, I didn't pull the trigger. You think he went up to him and he goes, guys, I'm sorry. You basically, I'm sorry. Basically, he's, he came out there and he's like, I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't mean to tell that guy to pull the trigger. Okay. See, we're 21. We're sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> That's the end of our story about S21 and the Chimera Rouge, Pol Pot. Comrade Duke and all of the other monsters and poor innocents that were mentioned in this story. I actually did not do the research on this story, so I'll name some of the things from the bibliography that this person had added that I had looked into for some of my own research because before this, like I said, I did not actually know what S21 or any of the Cambodian genocide was. So that's what's really cool about this this show that we do. I love the fact that we have three people in the room that semi don't know what the fuck they're talking about. That's my favorite part. So like Jake, Dylan, you guys haven't ever heard of the story, right? I come in blind majority of the time. So I come up with some really good stuff where I'm like, Hey, you should check this out. And you guys are like, what the fuck is this? That is literally the stuff that I, I thrive for. I love having people in this room that don't know what the fuck they're talking about, what this is about, and learning something and walking out of here and going, damn, dude, that is crazy that no one knows about this shit. That's kind of the nice thing about having all of us in a group together because I don't know a ton of shit, and I know most of you idiots don't know a ton of shit either. No, that explained <laughs> a lot. So I've never, re- like, the, the one thing I've always really been into is, like, the true crime. I love learning about the true crime stuff, and when I heard about S21... It blew my fucking mind because not only had I not heard about it, I also found out how many people died at it and what kind of things that were behind it that we talked about in this episode. I am so thrilled that we were able to actually do this episode. Jack Schmidt, I cannot thank you enough for the hard work that you put into this episode. You have knocked this shit out of the park. So next up, we are going to be doing Rodney Alcala. All right, guys, this one's kind of big for me because this will be my first serial killer story that I've done for the podcast. And this guy is a creep. He is hes quite literally like a monster. I know we just talked about a ton of them, but, like, this is one guy, and it's just it's the same thing, but not in a in a prison camp. This, oh, this dude is crazy. Some of you might know him by his uh, little little what is it monogram the the dating game killer he was on a special episode yeah remember that guy yeah see even jake kind of knows what we're talking about that's rare if i know about him like i know of him i don't know what he did though so i'm intrigued 
So I hope you go ahead and check out that. That's going to be up next. I am so glad that you guys were able to tune in and check out our story about S21, the Cambodian genocide, and Sihanouk, and Brother Duck, and just the worst parts of human history. I am so glad that you were able to make it this far, especially with all the genocide, all the terrible things you've had to hear fucking hangings, waterboarding, splitting people open, just nail ripping. It is just so fucking brutal. And if you have made it this far, then you were a total gorehead. And I fuck with you. And you can stay in my circle. Jake, do you want to stay in my circle? Too bad. I already offered it to these people. We'll already do. So I'll join them people in your circle. Oh, well, thank you so much for checking us out, dude. If you have made it this far in the episode, I cannot thank you guys enough. You guys have been through the ringer with this episode. It has been blood, gore, hangings, mutilations, waterboardings, and all kinds of fucked up stuff in between. Check us out on Patreon, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, fucking anywhere you guys get your podcasts. We are there. Uh, I also want to give out a special shout out to our Sweden listeners because you guys have been blowing the fuck up and I cannot appreciate it enough. You guys are phenomenal. I love Sweden. I love Sweden too. <laughs> Ashburn, there's Dubuque. You guys are so fucking cool and I cannot thank you guys enough for checking us out. Uh, another special shout out. I want to do the Patreon shout out. We also have Phoenix Crippen, uh, Kyle, we have Alanda, and we have Sarah. And I cannot thank you guys enough for jumping on the Patreon. This is just the start of the show. Thank you guys so much for, for donating. This is the future that we want. And we cannot thank you guys enough for supporting that. I am your fearless leader, Tyler Campbell. I am Tom with the magic wand. I'm your raining dipshit, Jake. I'm your diabetic daddy. And I'm the intern, Dylan. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Stay tight, stay right. And always listen to mom. (laughs) And we're fucking out.